There is no connection between severe mental illness and gun violence. Guess what? People snap. And snapping is not severe mental illness. It's the human condition. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. We all yell. Some of us slap while others throw punches. Some of us break dishes. And some of us, if there's access to guns, go on shooting sprees. People snap. They snap in traffic, at work. We scream on the phone at customer service representatives or at our daughter's Little League umpire. We are ejected from restaurants for making scenes. We break up with girlfriends and boyfriends and end up alienated from relatives and go years without talking to people we love. That is what it means to be human. We say things we don't mean and things we do mean, and we are mean, all of us. That is what it means to be human. Some of us are meaner than others, but we are human beings. We are deeply flawed and we hurt people. We fish, we hunt, we eat animals that were once babies. We are all sinners. We hurt each other and ourselves, which is why guns are a horrible idea. All of us each day experience at least one of those things I just mentioned, which is why guns are a horrible idea. We all hate. We all wish bad on other people. We all want to destroy. It builds up and we all let it out. It has to come out somehow. It comes out either in music, comedy, art, letters to the editor, eating disorders, cutting ourselves, yelling, slapping, punching, breaking dishes, smashing computers, throwing television screens out the window. And if there's ready access to an assault weapon, shooting up a mall. That's why guns are a bad idea. It's not mental illness that causes people to shoot up a mall. It's the human condition we all snap. We all smash things. We all smash people. Figuratively, metaphorically, emotionally, that's why guns are a bad idea. We smash relationships things, people, we scream at the top of our lungs or put our fists through a wall. We hate, we get jealous, we are consumed by resentment. So we exercise, watch football or mixed martial arts, eat bad food, believe Joe Rogan, kick a child, vote Republican, talk to a friend, or if you're lucky, a mental health expert. 
We cry, we weep, we shake, we refuse to get out of bed in the morning. And if there's ready access to an assault rifle, some of us use it on ourselves or a loved one. That's not mental illness. That's the human condition. It's why guns are a bad idea. We snap. We all snap. That's reacting to pressures, economic and personal, which get more and more intense each day here in America as we get lonelier and more isolated because of the guns. Guns are a horrible idea. Some people shouldn't have cake in the fridge because they're going to end up eating it all. Some people shouldn't have a gun in the house because they're going to end up using it. Believe it or not, snapping doesn't mean you're mentally ill. It means you snapped like a rubber band and rubber bands snap quickly and they go right back into place. Snapping means it was a momentary eruption and that is not mental illness. That's snapping. We all snap, which is why guns are a horrible idea. Humans snap, which is why every civilized society except America makes certain that guns are not around. Humans get drunk. They get careless. They are young. They don't calculate risk. They are impetuous and foolhardy. They act before thinking. They love. They get their hearts broken. They make mistakes. They have lapses of judgment, which is why every civilized country in the world, except America, keeps guns out of the hands of ordinary citizens. Other countries allow humans to be human. Other countries allow their citizens to be passionate, to be, to have feelings, to emote. But here in America, partially because of guns, we are slowly and methodically dehumanized, forbidden from showing the slightest trace of anger in the workplace or at school for fear that we will become identified as potentially the next active shooter. Everyone in America, because of guns, walks around like a zombie for fear they will be identified as severely mentally ill and therefore a physical threat to our coworkers. We are forced to watch what we say, not because of the woke mob canceling us, we are forced to watch what we say because red flag laws will identify us. These red flag laws are not designed to help people in emotional distress. They are designed to isolate them, to label them, to stigmatize them as non-persons and keep from them what they need more than anything else human interaction. 
There is an epidemic of loneliness in America. So the last thing this country needs is easy access to assault weapons or guns. 99.9999999% of us can keep it relatively under control. But there are some men, they're mostly white and in their early 20s, they can't. And so they grab an assault weapon and kill. That doesn't mean they're mentally ill. You need to understand what mental illness is. It has nothing to do with mental illness. Human beings snap. Two months ago, because I'm still a human being, I threw a dish against the wall after being kept on hold 40 minutes by my effing internet company. Now, am I severely mentally ill because the company? Am I severely mentally ill because the company that's ripping me off with lousy internet service is also wasting 40 minutes of my life by keeping me on hold to talk to someone who won't be able to solve my internet problem? I broke a dish. I smashed a dish. I snapped. Am I mentally ill because I felt powerless, cheated, ripped off? Am I mentally ill because there's nobody in this country who will help me deal with my internet company? Am I mentally ill for breaking a dish because of that? Because I snapped? Am I mentally ill? It's not mental illness. That's being human. But in Texas, in Governor Greg Abbott's world, in the NRA's world, in a world where everybody who wants to smash a dish against the wall can instead go out and purchase an assault weapon, I could be red flagged, considered violent. And you would say my violence is a mental illness as opposed to a rational response to the indignities foisted upon us by corporate America. A nation overflowing with guns can't afford to allow people to be people. Republicans mislabel anger and rage as a mental illness. <laughs> this from the party built entirely on anger, rage, and of course, untreated mental illness. Republicans in Texas have no idea what mental illness is or means. It has nothing to do with gun violence. People snap. That's not mental illness. Sometimes snapping like throwing a dish against the wall when you're on hold for 45 minutes is a rational response. There was a dish and there was a wall and I brought the two together. And it felt good, by the way. It felt good to hear the dish break against the wall. That's why guns are a bad idea. Now, I'm not interested in weapons, not because I'm afraid I would ever use one. That's out of the question. Uh, I just find guns a form of cowardice. 
if there's going to be a fight, I'm using my brain and my mouth. And if the fight is going to turn violent, I'm using my feet to run away as fast as I possibly can because the other guy might have a gun. Guns are for the sluggish dullards whose mind and body are too flabby to turn a phrase or toss a punch. As I mentioned earlier, Alison Jordan wrote for the Center in American Progress a report revealing that mental illness is not a major factor in mass shootings. Alison Jordan is a research associate for gun violence prevention at American Progress. And back in September of last year, over at the Center for American Progress, she completely debunked the myth that mental illness, not guns, this is the myth that mental illness is behind our country's unrivaled number of shooting deaths. She says 20% of Americans have been diagnosed with some kind of mental illness, a number that reflects the average in all other industrial nations. So Americans are no more mentally ill than any other country. And yet no other industrialized nation has this astronomical number of gun deaths. It's not mental illness. It's the guns. Personally, as someone who struggles with mental illness, I find it offensive to blame the gun deaths on the mentally ill. It stigmatizes, doing this stigmatizes conditions like depression, OCD, as well as bipolar and anxiety disorders. By blaming the severely mentally ill, it makes Americans suspicious and terrified of people who are suffering. It moves the mentally ill once again into the shadows by demonizing their emotional distress. You don't help the mentally ill by tarnishing them as threats to our society. It makes people less likely to seek treatment for fear of being red flagged. Look, we know it's settled law that guns make us less safe. We already know that when you own a gun, it's more likely to be used on you. It's settled law. So Republicans and the NRA and the gun manufacturers have made gun ownership all about freedom. Freedom from an overly intrusive government. That's the new thing. Freedom from a police state. That's how they're selling guns. A check on an overly intrusive government. But guns are not about freedom. Guns, we see this. Guns make us less free from our government. Guns force our police to fire first and ask questions later. Guns have turned our government into a surveillance state looking to red flag you. Guns give Big Brother permission to monitor our every move to make certain we're not going to shoot someone. 
the government spies on us. And because of all the guns, we want it to. We spy on each other. We report our coworkers and our neighbors. We red flag those we don't trust. And of course, the mentally ill. Guns make us less free. They make the government more intrusive. It turns the police into a police state. I'm going to keep telling you this. Mental illness has nothing to do with gun violence. Study after study shows that. In her report for the Center for American Progress, uh, Jordan writes that only 8% of mass shooters ever displayed symptoms of a psychosis. She says studies indicate that at best, at best, 20% of shooters could be categorized as suffering from some sort of clinical mental illness. In other words, you are more likely not to be suffering from a diagnosable mental illness before deciding to go on a gun rampage. Mental illness has nothing to do with mass shootings. As I said, there are other contributing factors like a temporary rage and more importantly, easy access to guns. People snap. That's not mental illness. The pressures of society, economic despair, souring personal relationships, it all builds up. And that's not mental illness. Some of these men turn these experiences into violent urges and they snap. And that's not mental illness. That's easy access to gun guns. The plan is to strip all Americans of our outrage, to make us subservient to capital, to corporations, to the police, the rich. It is not artificial intelligence that is robbing us of our humanity. It is the guns. It is the guns. Guns do not allow us to behave like humans. I don't care what the Second Amendment says. Guns are stripping Americans of our inalienable right to remain human beings. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. Steve Scrovan joins us. He's an Emmy Award-winning comedy writer. He's, I guess, best known for his writing on Everybody Loves Raymond, where he served as an executive producer. He's also my co-host on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, heard nationwide on Pacifica Radio. Welcome, Steve Scrovan. Thank you, David. You're very active out in Los Angeles right now with the Writers Guild strike. Tell me why writers are on strike. 
Uh, I will, but I, I just want to make sure that everybody knows that I am not uh, I'm not representing the Writers Guild in anything I say. I'm not on the negotiating committee or on the board or anything. I'm just a rank and file member. I'm not even a captain anymore. I used to be a strike captain, but I have been um, I actually haven't been on a, a, a staff for about five years. And when I went to the information meeting a couple of months ago where they were educating us as to what the issues were and warning us that they might need a strike authorization, uh, they were describing a world that in five years had changed so much I didn't I barely recognized it with short seasons and with things called mini rooms and all of these things that I was just not familiar with because I was lucky enough to be born when I was born and come up in a uh, much more uh, prosperous time for writers in the television industry. And so, so what are what are the writers going through? Well, the the writers are going through uh, basically what I call the gigification of um, the writing, the entertainment industry, uh, which means that like what's going on and is emblematic of industries all across the country where these uh, CEOs and upper management teams are just after their short term profits. And one of the ways to to get a profit, and it's not just having a profit, it's showing improvement in a profit, showing growth in profits. It's that drive to please Wall Street and whatever private equity people are involved in their companies that they need to cut labor costs. That's the biggest, you know, that's the biggest cost for them. And so they come up with all these different schemes. And this is particularly uh, true of the streamers, which were, <coughs> excuse me, not so prominent 15 years ago when we were striking. But uh, the way they're doing business is structuring it so they're paying writers the least amount of money they can do to the point where writers have lost 24, their incomes have declined 24% in the last three years. And the is that in terms of what the minimum basic agreement is, what the minimum salary is, or just the amount of work available to them, they end up making less money? Is that because yeah. there's not as much work out there for writers? There's Well, the, sh the seasons are shorter, so there's not as many episodes. <clears throat> and that's something we dealt with in the last uh, negotiation because they were holding us exclusive for an entire year when there was only you know, maybe three months of work involved. So, you know, th those things have been negotiated and that's just kind of the- So if you're on staff working 26 weeks on a sitcom today, are you making more or less money than you would have made back in 1988 when the last strike was? 19, you mean uh, 2007? Uh, 2008, I'm sorry. Yeah, 2008. Uh, well, that's the point, is that there are not that many shows. But but, but in, ter in terms of if you are lucky enough to get on a sitcom. Yeah. Are you going to be making more today? If it's a 26 week order, are you going to be making more or less than you were back in 2008? Uh, 
I think that's a question that I don't have the data to answer. But uh, I would assume you're making, you would be making more, that the minimum basic agreement has gone up. There, there there's, The problem yes. is there isn't enough work out there for writers. With though, yeah, that well, that's one of the problems. The other problem, yeah, there aren't as many. That's a broadcast network uh, model you're talking about. Right. The, they're the only ones doing 22 episodes now. Right. So yeah, so there's less work, but there's also this thing called um, mini rooms, where uh, and this is something that the this is a trick that the streamers have come up with, where before a project is even greenlit. They put together, I don't know how many, four, five, six writers in a pre-production process. And uh, these writers help with the pilot. They help uh, map out maybe the arc of a season. And they maybe even write two or three scripts or maybe put a Bible together. And then those writers are paid less because the project hasn't been greenlit yet. That's the... Um, uh, the the little accounting trick they're doing. And so they're paid at a lower rate. And then the project gets greenlit and those writers get dismissed. And so they and they leave it up to the showrunners to follow through and produce the rest of the show. Now, in my day on broadcast television, there was a pre-production process last two and a half months. And you needed that before the writers... I mean, excuse me, before the actors and the crew came in to start producing these episodes. And basically what it seems like they're doing is they're saying, okay, uh, they're firing everybody after the pre-production, plus paying them less because they're saying it's pre-production and it's before it's greenlit. Mm -hmm. So that that is... Even though your work ends up... Your, your work ends up on the screen. Your work ends up on the screen, but you've been paid less for it, and then you... You don't. You're not following the process through, which, when I was on Everybody Loves Raymond, that two and a half months of pre-production in the summer, then the uh, actors and the and the crews come in and you start shooting them, and we are there to fix things, and to rewrite and do do all of this, you know, direct at run-throughs and block scenes and edit and do all of the other functions. Then now they just want the showrunner to do a single person or maybe a team to do because they don't want this uh what they must consider excess baggage but what gets lost in that process is uh, uh it's a it's a lesser product because the fewer people you have the fewer brains you have working on the product the lesser it's going to be and the less people are going to develop you know, when I started as a writer, no writers don't come fully formed out of the forehead of Zeus. You need to watch the process in place in order to learn how to do the process. So uh, the companies, whether they care or not, and obviously they don't care because they're mainly bean counters, are kind of screwing themselves in the long run because they're not developing the writers they are going to need to create their future content. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how, what are the numbers in terms of writers, working writers versus out-of-work writers? What do, you, what do you know? That I'm not sure. I mean, there's probably, I mean, I think the Guild has about eleven or 12,000 members. And maybe at any one time, there's 7,000 of us uh, working, if that. 
Um, so I don't know what percentage that is, but... Um, and they've it, shut down all the major studios. They've shut down uh, all the sets. Is there any production going on? No. It, well, yeah, we haven't... I wouldn't say we've shut down. We've disrupted because they've had things that are in the pipeline, that are in the middle of production, or the scripts were written before uh, they started, you know, before the strike began, and they can try to fulfill those without the writers. They have, we're just not there to fulfill those. And they're going to be the less for that because there's not anybody who knows the stories and the scripts better than the writers. Are the have, late night shows coming back? The late night shows have gone completely dark. They were the first ones that, to go completely dark, yes. The other uh, production, there is other production going on, although we are, as we picket along all these studios, we've been stopping a lot of trucks from going in. We've been doing some location pickets that have disrupted production. We're trying to throw enough uh, monkey wrenches into their process to make it hurt. What do you do if you're an actor, you're a member of the Writers Guild, and you get a job acting on a show that's still in production because the script has already been written. What do you do if you're an actor? What do you do if you're a director who is also a member of the Writers Guild? Well, that is, that's up to the individual. Uh, but the, there is some anti-labor clause, both in the Director's Guild's contract and the Actors Guild's contract, where they cannot, I guess, legally not cross our picket lines. Um, they, 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 they can, can I, I'm sorry, so that's a double negative. So they, they yeah, can or they can't cross? They, they can. They can. They it's can. in their contracts that they have to. Now, that doesn't mean individuals would or can, but that, that's a separate deal that covers them as either a director or an actor, even if they are in our guild. Um, but if I they go in probably, there and write, then they're in violation. Exactly. No, yeah, there's no writing. Pencils down. Right. No writing. There's no fixing. There's no, you know, uh, pitching or anything like that. The, there's no writing duties. Now, is a, is a member of the Writers Guild picketing with another member of the Writers Guild are they allowed to come up with an idea on the picket line and talk on the phone, just a generalized spec? Oh, of course. You're of allowed course. to do that. Yeah. And in the last strike, it was a chance for a lot of writers to actually work on scripts. And you just couldn't sell those scripts at that point until everything was settled. But um, what about writing checks or, or signing my name? At a, a restaurant, when the when the flimsy comes, when the credit card flimsy, if I, can I say I'm on strike? I can't sign this credit card flimsy. Uh, you could do that, but you would probably uh, uh, go to jail. Okay, you know, or for yeah. So so obviously, this country is anti-union, or at least restaurants are anti-union. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, and I know you. You know, I've seen your signature. It's basically an X anyway, so it's easily. Uh, now, is Swinger still open on Beverly? And is Drew Carey buying every member of the Writers Guild a meal there? I don't know if he's doing that this time, but the uh, 
we have gotten deliveries of donuts and pizza and Man. baked goods uh, from actors and from agents even, uh, the ones that still forgive us for firing them uh, three years ago. Um, so there is a lot of you. Th this is what is different about what happened uh, 15 years ago, is that 15 years ago, the Writers Guild was basically alone. And not only was the industry press against us, which they normally are, but because their ads come from uh, the companies, but the Directors Guild was undercutting us. The actors were with us 15 years ago. But IATSE, which is another guild that uh, covers a lot of other people in the industry. Including and, animation writers. Yeah. They were not with us. This year, they are all with us, which is amazing. Because, Why is that? Well, because I think we all, it's an existential threat. What's going on is, when I talk about the gigification, it's an existential threat to all of us. And I think it's also kind of, uh, residual, you know, the union movement is is slowly trying to revive itself in general. When you talk about what went on at Amazon, what's going on at Starbucks, what um, the problem is, is they're not doing well, though. We have fewer and fewer people in unions. It's still at the but lowest. Of course. And that's that's the fight. But, you know, uh, five years ago, there wasn't any movement along these lines. Nobody was talking about any of that. And this now the, the rumblings are happening. And I think, you know, the Writers Guild is considered kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of like the sports unions. It's it's kind of what's called an elite unit, it's small, but it's elite. And uh, it's it's we're not like the Teamsters where, you know, it's a huge thing. Uh, but that makes us harder to replace. And it also means if if these companies can screw with us, then they can screw, they'll screw with everybody else. Well, they already have. That, well, yes, but if they, I mean, it's why it's important for us. And uh, uh, David Goodman, who did the Ralph Nader Radio Hour earlier for us, said that we're kind of the tip of the spear. And I think that's there's a lot of L.A. is a union town and that's why people can afford to live in L.A., you know, up and down uh, the production process, whether you're talking about the directors, the writers, the grips. Is that still the, is that still true? I mean, because it, it feels like and I haven't been in L.A. for a while. It feels like the studios. Well, I always hear L.A. is a union town, but the studios can't wait to go uh, out of state to a right to work state. I mean, you look at Alec oh. Baldwin's movie. Right, you can't, I mean, we, you can't control where they go to chase after cheap labor. That's the problem with capitalism in general. Well, why can't, but why LA can't- LA itself is, is, is a union town. So is production, is as much production being done in California, which is a union state, as is being done like Tyler Perry's studio in Georgia, in Georgia is is anti-union. No, a lot of, a so, lot of work, you know, goes to Atlanta, goes to Vancouver. It why do we? But so why do we allow the studios are based? I, I would assume 
either yeah. in New York or Hollywood. Yeah. So they just create one shell corporation after another. So you could be CBS owned by Paramount and CBS might own MTV and MTV isn't a Writers Guild signatory, but VH1 is. Comedy Central is a signatory, but Spike isn't. If they're buying up all these companies, but when it comes to recognizing the union, suddenly there are a thousand shell corporations yeah. all owned by the same studio. Yeah, I mean, and and the vertical integration is is a huge issue, and it's the same as mergers and acquisitions across all these other industries too, where you know the entertainment portions of their businesses are, you know, in the twenty percent range. So you know they they feel they can weather a strike because it's only twenty percent of their business, right? But they are still so bottom line oriented that you know little dips in their in their stock price make a difference so but they don't tell you you know the problem i think one of the many problems is you don't know who you're working for anymore and the fact is you're basically working for one of four studios you're either working for disney or comcast or Apple, or Netflix. Well, yeah, it's 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 it was uh, fifteen years ago. I think it was six. It was Fox, Sony, Disney, Universal, Warner Brothers, uh, and and then so what? What as I understand it, the, the shell game they play is okay. I'm Apple. I'm hiring you to produce a show for me. And then you have to decide whether or not you are a union signatory. And you have to negotiate with the unions, not Apple, as I understand it. Who's the you you're talking about? If 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 we decide to give Steve Scrovan a, a series on Apple TV. Really? Yeah, yeah. And so you... Your production, okay. your production company makes a deal with with me, the network, and I say, hey, my hands are clean when it comes to unions. You deal, you hire the staff, you hire everyone, you deal with the union headaches. And if you can somehow swing it without going union, that's not my, that's, that's not my issue. You get to keep what no, I, I don't think that's the way it works. First of all, you know, somebody like me wouldn't have a production company. I'm, you know, I'm a uh, independent contractor who's protected by union minimums. So, and then, you know, my representatives would negotiate a contract where those minimums are a floor. And if they, whatever they can uh, negotiate uh, above that is what agents are supposed to be. But what doing. I'm saying is Apple TV or NBC. <laughs> Or Comcast yeah. doesn't isn't the union signatory. It's the independent production companies. No, no, they are all these company, all those studios are union signatories. That's why they are negotiating with us. If they weren't, there'd be no negotiation because 
they're they're not uh, uh, independent of all of this. That's why they they've um, the the new players are the ones you've been mentioning. Uh, the okay six that we mentioned before, but Apple, Netflix, Amazon, those are the tech companies that are. So if I go to work, if I go to work on a show on Comedy Central, every show on Comedy Central is union. Yeah, but yeah, if it's Viacom, they are, they, you know, I don't know what, what, yeah, they're signatory. And, and if Viacom owns, I don't know, Spike TV or something, that's also union? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, cause my, the only, the only non, that's not been my experience, but the only non-union stuff is like, uh, we don't have jurisdiction over reality shows. Right. Or we don't have jurisdiction over um, uh, certain animation shows. We have jurisdiction over primetime animation, but not all the other animation, daytime animation or morning animation where kids stuff. So the union has jurisdiction. I mean, that's what the strike 15 years ago was about, was jurisdiction over what they called new media, which was the Internet. And which is why, you know, these the streamers, um, you know, that's. I That's see. Okay. Yeah. But 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 a network can own a non-union network, right? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a uh, labor lawyer. Okay. I think I think I'm not I'm not sure. Why has the union been good to you? Why 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 are unions good? Oh, well, unions are good because uh, they provide a health plan in this you know, screwed up uh, healthcare system we have in America. And the Writers Guild is particularly good. They call it a Cadillac plan, which Cadillac plan means it covers things, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so we've been able to negotiate a very good healthcare plan, plus a pension plan. Same thing, which is contributed by both the union members and by the companies. And that's uh, that's all part of various negotiations. It's not front and center at this negotiation, except for the fact that the less they get to pay writers, the less, the fewer contributions or the less contributions are made to those health and mm -hmm. pension plans. So that is a very long-term um, uh, detriment. And I think it probably answers the question why all these other unions are with us, because that is a real existential threat. Because the less they pay and the fewer people they pay, the fewer contributions on either side of that. And so pension and health goes away in the long run. And so we're fighting for that as much as anything else. Right. Right. And safety. Safety? Yeah. Safety. Uh, Unions keep the workers safe. You're l you less likely to get a paper cut as a writer on a union show. No, I don't. I don't know that. That's uh, you'll get the paper cut, but you'll actually be able to go to the hospital and and uh, and get it fixed. Well, the, but there is a red phone, like Yahtzee. The, the the people who lift and actually do real work. Uh, there's a red yeah. phone on the set. I'm, you, I'm sure there is. Yeah, I mean there there's safety uh, in in jobs that are particularly dangerous. Writing the worst thing you can get it uh, in uh, 
a writing room is probably blocked arteries from yes. all of the, uh, Yes. Uh, what can my <laughs> listeners do to show solidarity? Do we boycott the networks? What do we do? Cancel your uh, subscriptions? You could do that. Although we're not calling for a, a, a boycott of that just yet. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, if we do, it's well organized and has the proper effect. That's all. That's up to the individual. You can um, honk your horn when you see us on the picket lines. But if you're living, if you're living in, say, Omaha, yeah, uh, just just keep up with what's going on, and know that they're coming for you. So that if they if they uh, squash us, they're going to squash you, because we have a, a lot of good lawyers not only working for us, but a lot of our writers are lawyers. In fact, I think Chris Kaiser, who's the also the co-chair of the negotiating committee, is also a lawyer. Right. And, uh, so we've got a lot of very smart people working on this. We've got a lot of very creative people doing a lot of um, good PR work for us to get our story out there. And what also seems to be different, and I wish I could have gotten this confirmed, by a David Goodman in our interview on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, is that if I'm not mistaken, the industry press has been a lot more fair to our point of view than it has been in the past. And I suspect that is because the writers of these magazines, as such as they are, feel the same threat as we do. And so they're a little bit probably more empathetic and less likely to... Uh, to call us recalcitrant children for going up against mommy and daddy. Yeah. I, I, well, it's one thing to say you're pro-union and it's easy for the New York Times to appear pro-union until they have to negotiate with their own union. Of their own union. And the New York Times is having problems with their union you know, you say we're the tip of the spear. Yeah. I'm going to push back on that. I think All it's right. more like first they came for the teleprompter operators and I said nothing because I was a writer. Then they came for the makeup artists and I said nothing because I was a writer. Then they came for the lighting people. And now they came for me and it was too late. I do feel like that with unions. I, I think there's this cause I'm not trying to be a negative I, I just think there's the illusion of a union movement in this country because we're rising up. We are. Starbucks workers, Amazon. Problem is we have an NLRB that's been defanged by corporate America so that Howard Schultz and Starbucks can say, congratulations, you formed a union. Good luck negotiating with us. And the fines that Starbucks has to pay or Amazon have to pay are microscopic. It's it's less than the cost of doing business. So, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll let you go. I think I said this. We were at a Progressive Democrats of America conference call talking about this. And unless you have a federal government that has a labor secretary who is hell-bent on protecting unions from themselves 
and uh, unions from corporate America, unless you have rabid, foaming at the mouth lefties running these unions and people not seeing this as teamwork, but adversarial, this we are never going to have a burgeoning labor movement until all of us are willing to shut the whole thing down. It's nice to oh. shut Hollywood down, but the people who end up paying the price are the below the line workers. Are you allowed to go protest in Beverly Hills outside the mansions of the people who are keeping all the wealth? Do they allow that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think you can. Ordinances are. I don't know what the ordinances are, but the going back to the other point, all of these other unions are with us. So, um, but our government isn't. But the, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, and we know the reasons for that because they're bribed by corporate uh, cash. Yeah. So they pay lip service. They can pay lip service to it. You know, Joe Biden came out in in. in uh, you know, verbal support, but he's also the guy who made the railroad workers go back uh, without, you know, and they were asking for, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit. I mean, they'll make us grovel for our crumbs, but you still have to fight because if you don't, then uh, you'll get, you'll get nothing and it'll get worse. So, yeah, it's a big tsunami that we're standing in front of. And the that's why I always say that we don't know so much to go out on strike is that the companies decide whether they can make us go on strike. Could they conceivably crush the unions in Hollywood? Is it an existential um, threat to the Writers Guild, the strike? Uh, it, in the, I, I'm, it's hard to say because in the past they really needed us just for quality control and also to have one entity to bargain with. Um, but I think the gigification this time around with these tech companies getting involved, it's a different, uh, it's a different ethos. So I would, it's possible that they could, they would try to crush us that I don't think that's going to happen because we're just too smart and savvy. And, uh, you know, the Writers Guild has always been the guild that's been the prodigal son. We've always had to do the dirty work that everybody eventually benefits from. This time around, though, we're not alone. Right. Right. Steve Scrovan, you can hear him once a week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, heard nationwide. If you're not getting the Ralph Nader Radio Hour in your local market, call your radio station and say, I want Ralph Nader. Also, Steve is, among many things, he co-directed An Unreasonable Man, the documentary about Ralph Nader, which is streaming somewhere. It's streaming somewhere. Yeah, it's it's uh, probably on YouTube. Um, but uh, yeah, it's all over. And it, that's the project that changed my life and brought us together. David. Yes, it and did. Really, yes. really. I remember seeing you at the opening and, and being introduced to you for the first time, the opening in L.A. And I was. Yes. Thank you, Steve Scrovin. Thanks.
You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. <laughs>